I'm John Lefgren, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have Dr. John Lefkin on the show. You may remember I had uh, Dr. John Pratt. The two men worked together to find out when the first vision was, and they've come up with uh, March 26, 1820. So we're going to talk about John's involvement with Dr. John Pratt. And uh, so he's also the author of April 6th, uh, which uh, talks about the birth of Christ and the organization of the church. So. You won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have an amazing mathematician on the show. We don't get very many of those. Can you go ahead and tell us who you are? I'm Dr. John Lefgren, and I'm excited to be here with Gospel Tangents. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so you're an economist, I believe. Yes. Can you give us a little bit about your academic background? I, um, I grew up in Ogden, Utah. Ogden? Went to Weber State. Not Weber College back at the Well, time. in those days it was Weber State. Oh, it was, okay. Yeah, in those days it was. And I then went on a mission to Finland. I was in Finland for um, two and a half years. Okay. And then I came home, continued at Weber State, and then went to the University of Utah. Nice. A Utah man you are. I'm a Utah man. I was married at the time I was in Utah. My time was occupied with studies and family. Okay. Not much else on my schedule. Uh, I um, Now, I grew up in Ogden. What part of Ogden did you grow up? I grew up on 5th Street. 5th Street, okay. On a hill. I went to Ben Lomond High School. I was going to say I was an Ogden Tiger, so we were rivals. We were. We were. <laughs> ben Lomond High School was a great school. It was yeah. a good place for me. I had the best friends. Okay. Nothing but good things to say about my growing up years. <laughs> Wonderful family. A lot of excitement. A lot of give and take in conversation, and uh, it was fun. I had had a wonderful um, teenage years. I was very active in the Boy Scouts. Okay. And so you got your bachelor's in? Uh, Economics. Economics. Was that from Weber or Utah? From Weber. Okay. Then I went to um, the University of Utah on a National Science Foundation fellowship. Nice. For three years. That was adequate to feed me and my family. And after that, I got a Fulbright stipend to the University of Helsinki. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was at the University of Helsinki, wrote a dissertation on banking in the early industrialization of Finland. Oh, interesting. It was very interesting, very wow. fun. Wow. So you got a master's at Utah? No, no, no I, a, a, a doctorate at Utah. Oh, so, okay. But my dissertation work was at the University of Helsinki. Oh, okay. I went to Helsinki on a Fulbright for one year, took my family. I took the Foreign Service entrance exam when I was in Helsinki at the American Embassy. And when I came back, I got a position as a as, as a diplomat, as a foreign service officer in the State Department. Oh, really? Wow. Then I, from there, after some work in Washington, I was uh, assigned to the American Embassy in Helsinki. Hmm. Worked very, that was a very exciting time. Now, I don't know much about Finland, but they speak English pretty well there, I guess. You didn't have to learn. Uh, I learned Finnish on my mission. Oh, okay. All my research was done in the Finnish language. My wife is Finnish, oh. and I speak 
excellent finish. I have lived in Finland six years. I've traveled probably a half a million miles. Do they call it Vinland? Isn't that the land of the Vikings? No. No? No, you sound like a Viking. The Finns are, they call themselves Suomi. Suomalize that. Suo is a swamp, the land of the swamp. Suomi, Suomi. (laughs) Suomalize that. They are, um, they're not Germanic and they're not Slavic. They are in their own language group, their own identity as a race, for sure. They're in a borderland between two big forces. The, um, the, the, the Western civilization and the Eastern civilization of, of Russia. That's, uh, that's where they are. Okay. Still okay. are today. <laughs> in those days, not many people spoke much English. Nowadays, it's quite different. Okay. Yeah. Well, very cool. So you're an economic historian, is that right? I, I wrote on economic history. I wrote mainly on Scandinavian economic history. Yes, that's right. Published a few articles and I did my dissertation. Well, very good. Well, so I know the reason why we're having you here, you and John Pratt got together to uh, triangulate when the first vision was. It was never our intent to do that. You know how things happen in life. You make a plan and then something else happens. Yeah. yeah. So, so how did you get involved with John and, and, and all that sort of stuff? Uh, well, I wrote a book called April 6th dealing with the date of the um, organization of the church and the birth of Christ. Uh, that book was published by Desert Book and it was um, pretty well received. It came out in 1980 and um, BYU Studies reviewed the book, didn't have much good to say about it. It was oh. very annoying for me. <laughs> they didn't understand the argument and they were using what scholars have used for the last hundred years concerning the date, the likely date of Christ's birth. It goes around Herod. The arguments are pretty interesting. Uh, it's now shifting more in favor of a 1 BC birth year, but uh, most scholars for a long time have thought maybe it was a 4 BC birth year. Well, that wasn't my idea. And I took the book Talmud's on. Talmud's a 1 BC? He's a 1 BC man. Right, that's what I thought. For sure. And uh, to, to this date, BYU is sort of not yet there where they need to be. But uh, they, I was young. I didn't know who they were. And they tore into my book in their review. And uh, John Pratt had done work. I didn't know him. He was my age. He was living in Layton, working for the um, Hill Air Force Base. He was on the Minuteman missile. Okay. My dad used to work on the Minuteman. Yeah, John Pratt's a brilliant mathematician. I wonder if he knew my dad. (laughs) Probably did. So he he wrote a, a, a rebuttal to the review of my book, and he sent it to me out of the blue. Oh, wow. And um, uh, he and I became fast friends. We were friends for 40 years. Wow. I came out and visited him a couple of times at his house, became acquainted with his wife and family. Uh, I can't say enough good about John Pratt. He died a year ago. Yeah. You interviewed him. I interviewed him, and unfortunately, he passed away 
after the interview, but before I, I released it, so it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, his unusual mind, unusual mind. He was um, gifted in, in number theory. He was doing prime numbers before he went to kindergarten and had um, this appreciation for, um, for astronomy and for ancient calendars. Mm -hmm. I don't think the church has ever had anything to compare to what he was doing. Yeah, definitely. He did his PhD in astronomy at the University of Arizona, you know. Right. And um, uh, he, he, he grew up in a time when the computers were very expensive and it was cheaper to, to pay a, a, a computer programmer to work the code than to get somebody just hacking away and trying to see if something could work out. So his style was quite different from today. He would have supporting documentation on how the program is, was to work. Uh, it was expensive to, to, to test to see if it does work. Yeah. And so the mind was, I think, more involved in what he was doing than uh, maybe what happens today. It's so easy to calculate and you know to throw things up and see what sticks. Right, right. But uh, John Pratt came from a different time. He was very disciplined, and he was um, uh, he was gifted, gifted. He knew his Bible, and he knew his Bible well. He was completely in my camp, and I became very much a friend of his, and in his camp, the two of us did not match in math. He was, he was a genius, yeah, yeah. a genius. It was always fun to talk with him, though. And I knew that whatever he said, it was serious. And you had to sort of like go back and study it. And then he was always ahead of me in, in terms of the math and in terms of the astronomy. Okay, so that's interesting. So you had written a, uh, an article. A book. A book that Jesus was born on April 6th, 1 BC, is that right? That's right. Okay, and then John Pratt agreed with you, essentially. The big insight that I was hoping to bring to the world was how that uh, was perfectly uh, in alignment with the account given in the Book of Mormon concerning the um, death of Christ. Now, uh, are you aware of Dr. Chadwick, I'm trying to remember what his, Jeffrey Chadwick. I've talked to him on the phone. He knows me. We've never met. Okay. Uh, he is uh, at BYU, nice enough guy. I don't know that I have anything other to say than he's not yet where John Pratt was. <laughs> he's pretty convinced Jesus was born in December. Uh, that's not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work. The simple argument is real simple. <laughs> Christ was born in the spring because he died in the spring. We know Easter is in the spring. We know the crucifixion is in the spring. He was born in the same season of the year as, as his death. Uh, we have this, you know, 34th year, first month, fourth day. I mean, there's a very exact date. Because he uses the Book of Mormon and the Bible for his calculations. Uh, it'll, it'll, never, it'll never get himself into December. Uh, if you're going to give any value to the chronology the exact chronology that the Book of Mormon has for the death of Christ. It's, the birth and the death are, are, are in the spring, and as it turns out, they are both 
the birth and the death are on the Jewish Passover. Um, it's um, that's the way it is. And if you don't believe me, ask John Pratt. Except for I will uh, obviously provide a link to that interview because we talked a lot about the the uh, birth of Christ in that interview. I, I talked to Thomas Wayman also. Um, he's a BYU professor, and he his conclusion is we can't really date to any precision when Jesus was born. Um, I really agrees with Jeffrey Chadwick for sure, but. I, um, so this goes back to 1980. If numbers mean anything, if you can count one, two, three, you have a number line and you put a number on days, then I don't know how you cannot say that the birth of Christ and the death of Christ are first in the same season of the year. And upon close examination, uh, from his birth to his death, we have exactly 33 Hebrew calendar years. Uh, he was born on a day that's very exact. He was born on a Wednesday. He fulfilled every prophecy that related to uh, his birth. And he was killed. He was martyred. He was crucified on, on the day of Passover. Uh, that for me is... And as, as it was for John Pratt. That, well, I think the death is a lot easier to pin down than the birth, right? Well, okay. Yes, the death is easier. It was something that Newton spent a lot of time on. He spent more time on biblical chronology than he ever did on physics or on gravity. This was a very serious man doing very serious work. And he gave us the first indication of how to calculate the date of Christ's crucifixion. With the um, with the sun and the moon, and the and and and, and the spring, so um, certainly the crucifixion. We have one third of the New Testament deals with the week of Passion. We have more detail concerning that last week of Christ's life in the first century than we have on any other event. It's rich in its detail, and the the crucifixion of Christ is a big thing. And it's, it centers around Passover, just as we have our Easter mm -hmm. calculated primarily on the basis of how you might calculate Passover. So, 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 so the, the death becomes a very important point. But the Book of Mormon comes at it from the birth. The birth day is a day of great tension, great conflict. The believers are going to be killed. When the sun goes down in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, uh, this was um, Samuel the Lamanite's prophecy was real clear, and they were expecting it. Not uh, the non-believers were going to kill the believers. Well, the sun went down and, and the light uh, filled the sky. Uh, that uh, that is a, um, and they began a new calendar count. They began a new calendar count on that very day. And so on the day of his death, we have an exact year, month, and day in their calendar. That's the marvel at all. And that fixes it on both ends, the death and the, and the birth. Okay. Now, John Pratt had done a lot of work on that. He didn't know I was doing it. We both came at it a little bit differently. 
He said, I scooped him on the story. I said, oh. But it, it, was, it didn't take very long before I understood that he was... So you guys were both working on the same thing, basically? Uh, yes. Oh, wow. On the same, same approach. And um, it was so comforting to me to have somebody who actually understood what I was doing. My critics didn't. They still don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so that was how you got to meet John. And then how did you guys get into the first vision? Well, John and I have a friendship that lasted 43 years. And we would talk on the phone. Uh, he wrote for Meridian Magazine. Right. Uh, I met with him f and his wife for about four days in Vermont at a place I had there. And we reviewed some of the work that he was doing. Uh, we were talking all the time about different things. He was writing. I had written April 6th, and I heard that some church leaders suggested that April 6th would have been a good day for the first vision. So the April 6th date really is uh, where, where I started. Uh, that's 1830. Right when the church is organized, but it's 1820 when we have the first vision. I, I want to tell a little bit about this because I think it's interesting. Uh, the weather news, the, the, the news report and weather go together. The U.S. Bureau of Weather is one of the oldest federal agencies. Uh, there was this young doctor from Harvard uh, in 1818, James Lavelle, who was like 29 years old. I don't know how he became the, the uh, Surgeon General of the United States Army, but he came down with some ideas. Uh, this had never been done before. Uh, he had uh, 14 military posts that were reporting to him. These are medical doctors who are reporting to Washington on the condition of the troops and um, how they might be able to improve their health. These are from different posts from around the country, a million square miles. Now, the country in 1820 was a lot smaller than the country Indeed. today. Indeed. <laughs> it was, it was uh, all east of the uh, Mississippi. Right. And most of the military posts were pretty close to... Um, to to the oceans, uh, and um, these were doctors, and they all had thermometers. A thermometer was like a big instrument. Up until that time, it probably would not have been possible to, to, to uh, collect uh, temperatures, weather temperatures. So Lovell instructs his this is the Surgeon General, young guy. He puts together a system for them to report to him every day on the weather, three times a day. They have to fill out a report and they have to give him temperature and general weather conditions. Just a short statement. 
these um, reports are collected in Washington. They cover nearly a million square miles of territory. This is the first national weather reporting system in the history of man. Uh, now, up until that time, probably could not have done what would have. You, you need an instrument to measure it. Right. So the, the thermometer, the Fahrenheit scale, had already been developed, and thermometers, mercury thermometers, were common uh, to, for the doctors. And they could, in the morning, see what the temperature was and write it down, and then in the afternoon, and then in the evening. Uh, these are tens of thousands of, of observations, uh, handwritten with a quill pen, sent into Washington. Now, some doctors are better than other doctors. In the um, area of New York, New York had, at one time, a third or fourth of all the military assets of the United States because of the War of 1812 and the British up there. So Sackett's Harbor was, was a big Port. Because the British were coming from Canada? Oh, they had already had those fights up there. Yeah. So the Sackett Harbor position, that's where we took a stand, and it's now in, in America, it's in the United States. But Sackett's Harbor had some pretty important people, military officers, like Ulysses Grant was up there for a while as a young officer. And that's why West Point is in New York, I guess, right? No, West Point was probably before them by 10 years. But New York was, was an important command post. Mm -hmm. And they had a very good doctor there, Dr. Wheaton. He was, he, he, his penmanship is good and his records are incredible. And he's, he's making an observation three times a day. And he's reporting on that to, um, to the Surgeon General. Each month he sends a report. That report ends up in the National Archives and it's microfilmed, and it's there for anybody to, to look for. So the, um, the Surgeon General has 14 surgeons around the country giving him lots and lots of data. And nobody's ever done this before, and he doesn't know, what do I do? And so in um, July 1820, the newspaper in the Washington Inquirer Prints the first weather report in history. <laughs> what, 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 tell us when that is again. Well, it had been collected. So it's, they started in 1820. 1820. That's January 1820. Interesting but year. 1820, and we have then this flood of data. I mean, we have before that you might get one or two temperatures. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, he he liked his thermometer, and he kept his temperature in his diary, in his journal often. But until that time, you had no systematic effort to collect weather information. Mm -hmm. uh, and So if this had been 1819, we'd be out of luck, right? Absolutely out of luck. <laughs> absolutely out of luck. It was, um, it's never been done before. The Germans won't do it for another 10 years. The English will try to follow us. But this young doctor and Surgeon General, he he developed a system for for data collection, and uh, then he prints up a report in the local newspaper, National Enquirer, National uh, National in Intelligencer, and um, printed in Washington. It's a neat sheet, has all these numbers on it, 
with data. Well, for a math guy. Yeah, just tables of, 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 of temperatures. And he says, I don't know why I've done this, but maybe somebody would like to look at it later on. And so in this printing of the first ever national weather report, we have the first vision. <laughs> Can you believe that? So how did you know about this? I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't. So, because John... Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I read, and it's in the church history, that on April 6, 1830, it was a beautiful day. So in Lake Seneca, George, uh, rather, uh, um, Joseph Smith Sr. is baptized. And the weather was unusually warm, and it was clear. That was in the church record. And I said, well, is there a weather record that I can find that might confirm that? In 1830. In 1830. And I found it. And it was there. April 6, 1830, clear day, beautiful day, Lake Seneca. Not a bad place to be baptized. <laughs> now, this is another controversy. Was it in Manchester or Fayette when the church was organized? Are you, are you, it was in Peter Whitmer's house. Was that in Manchester or Fayette? It's Manchester's off. It's in. It's to this day. It's still in Fayette. Okay. I don't think there's any controversy there. Well, there is actually. Uh, um, Michael Marquardt has said it was actually in Manchester. And the Manchester's like 20 miles away. That's what he said. Yeah. And um, I, I really think that. Um, so the Book of Mormon, much uh, some of the Book of Mormon was translated in Fayette. You know, in, in the Whitmer Farm. Mm -hmm. The Whitmer Farm is a beautiful place. I think that's. Yeah, I, some of the original records say Manchester, and then some might have been some so. planning records. People saying what, what, Joseph Smith wanted Tuesday, April sixth. He was told by revelation, Tuesday, April sixth, eighteen thirty, is the day on which this church will be organized. Why? Yeah, because it's weird that it wasn't a Sunday. It was. It's real weird. Yeah. It's it's a work day. It's a sunny day. The farmers should be out. Working. Working. But they gathered together. It was That day was, was by revelation. And the reason that Joseph Smith says we're going to organize the church on this day is the, it's the birth of Christ. 1,830 1, years since the birth of Christ. He was told on that day to organize it. So the weather's great. In the church records, the weather record in Sackett's Harbor is the same kind of weather. It's beautiful weather. I said, well, that fits. April 6, 1830, clear day, nice temperatures are pushing up over 70. The, the spring in New York, the spring in New England is powerful. It can come in just a few days. The weather is incredibly, can be incredibly beautiful. So uh, that fits. And I said, well, let me see if I can find A weather report for 1820. Same guy, Wheaton, Dr. Wheaton was keeping it 10 years before. And guess what? It was cold. It was miserable. There was sleet. 1820 was not a beautiful morning. <laughs> April 6th. April 6th, 1820. It was not, not nice. And so I said, the weather's not there. Know how lovely was the morning singing on that day. 
and, and I, it's, it's, and I told John Pratt, and he, he didn't quite catch it. He didn't understand these weather records. And so years later, he comes up with a view on the first vision, uh, which was Sunday, March 26, 1820. And um, that he gets from the calendar of Enoch. And I says, I don't know how you got there. I know you're really careful in what you do. I mean, when John Pratt counts days, he's counting days. He's, he goes down to the hour. Right. He's got a head for it, too. He knows a number line. And he doesn't, uh, the, he's obsessed with these numbers. It's not some kind of, I mean, if he can't get the, the numbers to line up, he won't have much opinion. That's how he comes to it. And so according to the Enoch calendar, March 26 was a special day. It's right after this, because I know March 20th is the first day of spring. Uh, well, it's, it, it gets, it's sort of like, when was Easter in 1820? We have this really complicated formula. Yeah. Because we're trying to mesh two cycles. Yeah. We got the spring, we got to have spring for Easter, and we need the, the moon. Right. And the moon is really a trick. And if I ask you, what was uh, Easter Sunday? It's always on a Sunday, too. Right. Easter's always on a Sunday for the Christians. And it's in the spring. And we have Easter Sunday because we have a formula that was developed. Um, and, and the calendar was reformed mainly because of that. Uh, well, the calendar we use today, the Gregorian calendar, mm -hmm. is mainly a reformed calendar that Pope Gregory had. So, I mean, uh, all right, so you got spring, uh, Easter is in the spring, and Easter is always on a Sunday, and that's the way it is. So the, the Enoch calendar, always the first day of the year is always on a Sunday. First day of the week, always on a Sunday. So this is the first day of a very important um, point in the, in the Enoch calendar. Uh, when I say important point, John Pratt has an Enoch calendar that stretches out over 7,000 years. And in his calendar, it's amazing what he did. And I says, well, I, you think it was the 26th of March, 1820? It's a Sunday. Because he had already published this, right? Uh, he had, so this all happened in a matter of a few short weeks. He had suggested that as a first vision date. And it was just in a footnote and a sentence. And I called him up and I says, John, I don't know how you did this. Uh, I know you're careful. And I know that you don't do these things lightly. I don't know how to even appreciate what you're trying to tell me about the calendar of Enoch. I since learned a lot more, but at that time I said, I don't know. But I told John, I can test it. I can test. I know the weather. I know the weather. And um, he says, how do you know that? I says, I got the weather report. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the weather report. I got the first national weather report in history. Hmm. And it has, has weather for March 26, 1820. So I ordered from the National Archives the, the, um, the microfilm. I'd already seen April 
wasn't there, hard to understand. April 6th was not going to work. Yeah, sleet, you said. So, but I, so I hadn't seen March. And um, March 26th is spring, early spring. Not bad, it's still early spring. So I took the first six weeks, you know, from March 15th to maybe April 15th and maybe a few more. I'm looking in this narrow range. Um, but I didn't have the microfilm. You can order it from the National Archives. They send you the whole film. Oh, really? Yeah, so I put it up on, this, on the um, microfilm reader in Flemington, New Jersey Library. Is that, is that what you taught or something? I had a business in New Jersey, and uh, that's where I got my, uh, that's, they had a microfilm reader oh, wow. <laughs> in the library. I went there, and I said, this is going to be so easy. It's either a beautiful spring morning, the likelihood in spring in that part of the country is it's miserably cold. Right. Because you're in this period of transition. I couldn't believe it. There were three days, it was snow on, we're talking about a Sunday, so there's snow on Thursday. There are temperatures that are freezing, and then it breaks. And you can see it right in the, in the sequence. And you come, and March 26th is written out in, you know, in a quill pen. <laughs> Brilliant, beautiful day. What was the temperature, do you remember? Yeah, 72. 72, nice. Uh, it is so incredible when you get a 72 degree temperature in New England in the spring. It's like the sweetest thing you can imagine. It is really amazing. And so I, I called John and I said, hey, I don't know how you did it, but I got the weather and the weather is completely in alignment with what you're suggesting. I went to the back, I went to the front of that spring period of six weeks. I said, there's no other place. And uh, that's where we sort of landed. Two different strange ways of going, but I'm, I'm absolutely confident in what he did and what I did. I have, as a matter of fact, I was able to buy the 1820 newspaper, the original. I have that. Oh, really? I have for March 26? I do. Oh, wow. I do. I mean, the original paper, everything, it's, it's really wonderful. So I thought, well, this is interesting. This is very interesting. I had to then spend some time trying to understand Enoch. Mm -hmm. There is a part of the story that's important, and that's the maple sugar production. Lucy was a big producer. She was a producer of maple sugar, 1,000 pounds, a lot of work. So Joseph, when he was 14, and the family in that year made 1,000 pounds of sugar, very weather dependent. The sugar, uh, the, the sap flows according to the fluctuations in, 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 in the temperature. Uh, and it, um, the pattern by which that works is, is well known to scientists today. This dissolution rate of carbon dioxide in the sap is affected greatly by the temperature, the outside temperature. If you don't have a freezing night and then a thaw in the day, 
the sap doesn't run. The sap doesn't run, you don't make sugar. But if you get two days with temperatures above freezing into the night, the sap stops. And when the sap stops, the sugar production stops. So you get this unusual day when the temperature is over 70. It's a bright, clear day, and there's no sugar production. Everybody's exhausted because they've been working 14, 15-hour days keeping those fires and boiling that sap. The whole house would have been just completely quiet. And uh, it was Sunday. Uh, no doubt about that in my mind that uh, Joseph Smith went into the woods to pray on Sunday, March 26, 1820. Now what does that mean? Uh, Enoch is an interesting prophet. We have our scriptures and we're grateful for them. Uh, most of what is written in the first five books of the Bible was written by Moses. Job in our current Bible is probably the oldest of all of the books. We have no book in our Bible that predates the flood. The book of Enoch predates the flood. So I write this article about the first vision and about the calendar of Enoch. And I get these people from Ethiopia contacting me. They have the uh, Coptic church there. Mm -hmm. The Ethiopian Christians are among the oldest continuous practicing Christians. And they have the book of Enoch. In their Bible. In their Bible. Yeah. We didn't see that in English until 120, 140 years ago. But they've been keeping that record. And that's where the calendar of Enoch is? Well, there's seven chapters on the calendar of Enoch in the Ethiopian or in the, in the book of Enoch. Seven chapters. Very complicated. Have these 364 day years. Uh, you have this angel Uriel telling exactly how it's supposed to work. Uh, John Pratt figured it out. Yeah. The neat thing about the calendar of Enoch, it makes prophecy concerning these divisions of time. It's common for Jews and Christians to believe that the earth temporal existence is 7,000 years. Well, the book of Enoch lays it right out. And in that pattern of time that Enoch lays out with his calendar, he identifies in these epic periods that are about a thousand years. And so in his prophecy, there is a great thing that will happen on the 26th of March, 1820. <laughs> John Pratt put that together. Should we all become Coptic Christians? <laughs> I don't know. I think that we should become aware of the faith that has endured for so long. Let's not forget, Enoch, Joseph Smith has a lot to say about Enoch in our Pearl of Great Price and other places. Enoch is before Noah. He's the seventh from Adam, right? Enoch has an important role to play in the restoration of all things. This is his book. And it's got some strange stories in it. 
and maybe we've lost some of it, but but this calendar is amazing. And John Pratt has a has an answer for it. And that's to his credit. Well, and as I recall, I'll have to go back and watch that interview. But um, instead of having a leap day like we do every four years, he has a leap week every five years. So the secret to the calendar of Enoch is the week, not the day. Right. Time moves as it does in our own t place. We often, most often, identify time in terms of what day of the week is it. You know, is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? Thursday? We the seven-day week period is um, is common to us. So, in making his calendar of Enoch, you have to keep the week together. You can't. Now, in our calendar, we intercalate, we adjust in full days. In the calendar of Enoch, you adjust in full weeks, and you have to put this week in every once in a while. And that's 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 the way. I mean, otherwise, it, it'll get out of sync with the seasons. Right. Well, so your 364 versus 365, it gets out of sync quick. Well, it gets out of sync pretty quick, but with this with this intercalation, the John Pratt intercalation, we have um, a brilliant calendar. Yeah, it's, it and, and, awesome. And, well, it's and it's not just awesome. If you stretch it out over seven thousand years, it's more accurate than our Gregorian calendar. And um, <laughs> gotta thank the Lord that John Pratt was able to do this before he died, because yeah. nobody else would have a mind for it. Uh, that's that's clear to me. That's clear to me. And I, the people in Ethiopia knew something was going on. Another thing that happened, we had this little video on the first vision. Yeah. And I was giving, um, I was getting some emails from Nigeria. I couldn't believe it. They were having meetings in Nigeria, like firesides, showing this video. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I. Um, These weren't LDS firesides, or were they? I, I, I think it might have been a mixed mixture of things. The guy in Ethiopia that contacted me, we're still friends on Facebook. He works for the, um, for the agricultural ministry. He's a Coptic Christian. And uh, for him, this was really, really meaningful. All right, welcome back to Gospel Tandage. You know, we were talking to John Lefkren, and uh, we, we got interrupted, and so I didn't get to ask him all the questions I wanted to ask. And so uh, we came back here a few days later, and. We're here to finish up on the first vision, and then we, we can talk about a few other things. So, um, so we've, we've got, kind of gone through the first vision pretty well, the, your work with John Pratt yes. and, uh, and that sort of a thing. I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you, um, you know, there are some people like Dan Vogel and, and uh, others um, that question the, the, some of the things in the first vision. Um, you know... One of the things that Joseph said is there was a great um, excitement about religion. But Dan Vogel says that didn't happen in 1820. That wasn't until 1823-24. And so I was wondering, because you and John Pratt have dated it to uh, March 26, 1820. Yes. Um, you, you were instrumental in finding those weather records. Yes. And so... 
wh- how do you wh- what do you think about those issues with like Dan Vogel and saying, well, either we need to move the first vision later or Joseph talked about something that didn't happen in 1820. How do you reconcile that? I, I don't know that I can reconcile it. It seems to me that the best account we have of the first vision is the original account as given to us by Joseph Smith. The 18th, because there's also four different versions. Well, this is true, but it's, uh, we know what he said. He gave us the most complete account. This is the 1838 account. 1838 account, 18 years after the first vision. And I don't know that he, You know, it wasn't published broadly in in its final and best version until 1838. Yeah. Most people are familiar with the 1838 account. And I think that's the best place to start. And I think think we don't go too far away from that. Uh, I'd like to at least mention that Wentworth is known to the Smith family. Mm -hmm. The Wentworth family was, had huge tracts of land in Vermont and in New Hampshire and would have been known very well to uh, Lucy Mack Smith. And so when, um, the, um, when one of the sons of, of, of the Wentworth family from New England uh, went to Chicago to, to, um, to start his newspaper, um, the letter or the inquiry from Wentworth would have been very meaningful for Joseph Smith. Uh, Very meaningful. Uh, He was at the top of the social ladder in New England. He was coming from a family that was well known to uh, his mother. And the the letter is written to Wentworth to be published in his new uh, newspaper. And I think that Joseph Smith was very careful as he recounted the first vision to, uh, to Wentworth. I, I think everything else may be a little bit early. It wasn't intended to be a, sort of a um, complete story, but there's nothing better than the 1838 Wentworth letter. Nothing. Because I know Stephen Harper has said he's a BYU professor. I know him. I know of him. He has views. Well, one of the things that he said, and I'm trying to remember what year it was, there's a later account, 1840, 41, 42, I don't remember, somewhere around there. And when, in the 1838 account, one of the things that Joseph talks about is the severe persecution, um, yeah, I, which was happening in 1838. There was severe persecution, but it wasn't happening in 1842, and he kind of leaves that out. So I, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in all of these matters. I, I know that there have been scholars that have spent years looking at them. I would, um, just coming at it from the weather point of view, I looked at those other years, some of those other years. Mm-hmm. I can say, I think, with some confidence that there was never a spring morning like that spring morning in 1820. It was, um, it was glorious. It was not to be found in later years. The weather account is clear, and that's what I was looking at, you know. Did you look at any other years? Of like, course. Like 1823 or 24? I did. I looked at them all, and I tried to plot out some of those um, weather charts. Um, my conclusion was, and I didn't 
finish that, but it was that this is an unusual day. March 26, 1820 is unusual with respect to the weather, very unusual. And um, weather has a powerful impact on memory. We don't always remember dates, but we can remember, we can remember uh, sometimes weather. I did some research on Oliver Cowdery the first time that he appeared to the Smith house to teach and become a, you know, an instructor of, uh, of, of the Smith's children. Uh, he lived there. And uh, there was a, a night when he showed up that it was really rainy, a terrific storm. And uh, it was in Lucy Mac Smith's account. He'll go from there down to Harmony to help translate the Book of Mormon, or to, to be the scribe for the translation of the Book of Mormon. It was interesting for me because of the weather that, that Lucy Mac Smith talked about when Oliver Cowdery came to visit the house. It was right there on the record. I like that. So I had another point of reference in terms of weather. I think if I have anything to say, I have something to say about weather. Couldn't say it without the weather reports. The weather reports are unusual in their detail. And um, 1820 is the the year that Joseph Smith gives. It's 14th. You know, I, I, I think he got it right. I think he was really careful in 1838 uh, when he was preparing what became uh, canonized for, um, you know, the Wentworth letter, the Wentworth letter. Um, I went to Wentworth's gravesite in Chicago. Oh. Yeah, I tried to follow him. A very interesting fellow. I think the Wentworth connection, the fact that we are getting some of the clearest and most detailed accounts of early church history, prepared by Joseph Smith himself, that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, how can you improve on that? Yeah. So do you think that Joseph m might have had a bad memory and combined some events uh, together? Of course. Okay. He didn't have a perfect memory. Yeah. Who does? Right. But there are times when you remember things. And when, when God the Father and his Son appeared unto him, he knew it was a beautiful morning in the spring. I mean, you can't experience that without remembering the uh, actual surrounding. Uh, I was in uh, the grove, and uh, I'm looking for this glorious spring morning. Well, when we went there on the very day of the first vision, it was really cold, really not nice. On March 26th? Yeah, on March 26th, believe it or not. Yeah, most people... Well, that's normal weather, right? <laughs> uh, indeed. Yeah. It's, the spring, early spring, is going to be a time of great change in weather. Right. So temperatures can move, uh, you know, 20 degrees in 24 hours. Um, that's, that's the way New England works. When the spring comes, it comes with a great force. It, um, and everything comes alive in, in a very short time. Um, and it's magical. Uh, the, um, the weather, the warm weather in the early spring in a grove of trees can take your breath away. I've been there. Very magical. It's, um, 
something that if anyone goes and experiences it will not forget that and the fact that on that day God the Father and his son Jesus Christ appeared unto him I think is is remarkable so let's give um, I, I would give 90 if you got a hundred points in terms of weight you know where are you going to concentrate as to what is a good account boy the Wentworth letter is is the best we got. And well, the, the, I'm glad you pointed that out. I, I want to ask you a couple other questions about that. The 1832 account, which is the earliest count, right. but it was the one that was found latest. It wasn't until the 1960s it was found. Joseph said he spoke to the Lord, as in singular. I, 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 I hear what you're saying, and I'm not going to try to interpret any of that. All I know is this, that the most complete and accurate account that we have with the first vision was given to Mr. Wentworth by Joseph Smith himself. And that is a complete account. I mean, that is canonized. I like that. I like the idea that we have um, the first vision in the Pearl of Great Prize in Joseph Smith's history without you know much comment about these other things. Okay, the historians can look at that. Uh, I, I don't know that it's, for me, if you want a good record and a good account, you go to Wentworth's letter. Okay. Uh, it was a serious, a serious um, um, production on the part of Joseph Smith. He knew the Wentworth family. These were among the most important people in New England. And his mother would have known Wentworth's um, parents. Okay. And then the other question I want to ask, um, you know, a lot of times missionaries will use the, the first vision account, the 1838 account, um, and, and we call it a vision. Um, do you think it was a vision of God and Jesus, or was it a visitation where they were physically present? Do you have a, an opinion on that? Uh, I, mean, I, I just go to the account. I mean, I don't know that my opinion matters much anyway. Uh, he saw God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And they spake unto him. And um, he had that, you know, experience with, with a, a dark and evil force before that occurred. He thought he nearly died, was going to die. I, I like that interpretation. I mean, okay, fine. What does he say? I'm not going to try to. So you're not going to distinguish whether it was just a vision of two. I think the way the story is found in, in the 1838 account in our Pearl of Great Price is as good as we can hope to get. And for me to try to bring in something else, I mean, I'm not, I, don't have a, I don't have any authority to speak in any way. I mean, I, I'm looking for the weather. I'm looking for the circumstances of the family. Um, I think you got the year right. You think 1820 was the correct year? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then he might have conflated some events in 1823 and I in could perhaps, but I, I the, the event we're looking at is the, looking for is the first vision, and that was, it was profound for him. I'm I'm sure of that. It was very profound, and um, the detail that he gave us is is, is pretty sufficient, I think, to. Uh, you know why not? Why why try to twist or change it? I mean, it's, it's, it's well. There are just some people that say there are some conflicts, and 
You know, like, like the revivals. There were no revivals until 1823. Well, I know the revival question could have been part of... I, I don't have any insight on any of that. I mean, I, I, I read the account. I think it's a truthful account. I think it's one of the most truthful accounts ever given by anyone who is remembering something. It's very detailed, and it is... Um, it's a mistake for us to try to tear it apart and not let him tell it in his own way. I think it's a very truthful account. Very truthful. And um, so you remember things. We all remember things in a different way, particularly 18 years later, you know, it was before. Uh, maybe it, he didn't know what had happened to him. He was grateful. He felt very sort of lifted by the fact that his sins had been forgiven. And he was, he was um, reconciled to God. Now that's, uh, that's a big thing. Big thing. I mean, we, anyone who has had some kind of spiritual experience and then tries to recount it years later may have some mixing of things. No, this is this is a big story. Mm -hmm. It's a big story, and it's, it deserves. Um, uh, the, this is a personal story of salvation that Joseph Smith experienced, and and the best account he gave of was in 1838 to Mr. Wentworth, John Wentworth, and I think he was really, really trying to give it as honestly as he could. All right, very good. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. John Lefkren. In our next conversation, we're going to continue to talk to him, but this time we're going to switch gears a lot. This time we're going to talk about the Heartland Theory. I was surprised to find out he's president of the Heartland Research Group. It would have been about 10 years ago. Okay. I wasn't any Book of Mormon scholar. I had done a lot of work on calendars, but it seemed really strange to me that that we have a lot of um, confirmation concerning Palmyra, Moroni, and the destruction of the Nephites. And so, in my typical fashion, I sort of started. I, I, I said, "I'm going to. I'm going to look at this." And that's where it started. If you like what we're doing here on Gospel Tangents, please become a paid subscriber at gospeltangents.com or patreon.com slash gospeltangents. We've got full transcripts on our website at gospeltangents.com. And if you'd like to check out some of our other conversations, click over here. Thanks. <laughs>